Well, I'm back, and I'm going to be preaching out of Luke. So I'd love for you to turn to Luke 24. We had a wonderful singer joining us while you were reading there, Shelley. It's beautiful. I love it. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. Um, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. Turn there, and uh, when I hear the pages stop rifling, I will pray for us again for the proclamation of the word. Let me do that. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sweet like honey, that it refreshes our souls, that it reveals who you are in all of your goodness and glory. And I pray that you would accomplish those things this morning, that we would be refreshed, that we would see your glory, that we would be encouraged, that we would be humbled before you in your throne. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Before I read our text from Luke chapter 24, I want to kind of begin with a fundamental question that I think we as Christians eventually bump into, okay? And the question is this, how should we read our Bibles? Maybe you've never even thought of this question, but I'd like to present it to you. It may seem even kind of like a silly question, but I think it's actually a really important question. How should we read our Bibles? Should we read them cover to cover? Like we would read a normal story, like Genesis to the end, uh, like we would read every other book off the shelf for the most part. I don't know if you've tried it, but it gets kind of tricky right when you get around like numbers. Uh, Since the Old Testament came first, is that where we as Christians should go first in our Bibles? Does the story of mankind actually begin in Genesis chapters 1 through 3 with the creation? Or does it really, in fact, start someplace else? Um, I meant to bring my son's binoculars, and I want, to think, I want you to think through it this way. I don't have them, but you know what binoculars are, so you get it. Uh, if you look through binoculars, which end are you supposed to look through first, right? Um, remember the scene from Little Mermaid? I, I'm uh, professedly a, a Disney fan. I've said that before. Where Scuttle the seagull looks through the binoculars backwards, and he sees Ariel, the, the mermaid, really, really far away. And he's like yelling to her and then he puts the goggles down and she's right there in front of him and he's like, wow, you're a fast swimmer, Ariel, right? How do we look through the lens of scripture? What's the right way to do it in order for us to understand the Bible rightly? Which lens comes first? Is it the Old Testament or as my uh, Old Testament professor in college would say, the First Testament or is it the New Testament that came later? And what I want to claim this morning actually is that because Jesus is the central figure of all of the Bible. When we read our Bibles, we actually need to start with Jesus, okay? I think as we read the Old Testament, we need to think about it in terms of Jesus. As we read the New Testament, we need to start with Jesus. As we think about Revelation and end times stuff, we need to think through the lens of Jesus. In other words, Jesus is the foundation upon which all of human history rests. He's the foundation upon which the Bible rests. He's the beginning of the story and the end of the story. And, and I want to assert that I think Jesus himself is going to prove that point this morning in our text from Luke 24. Let me say it one other way. I think that the Bible is the one storybook, right? I'm not talking about like a reference book, but the one storybook the only storybook in all of human history that you read from the middle outwards. Got it? Jesus is in the middle of the scriptures. He's presented to us most fully 
first in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And from that point, I think everything else begins to really make sense. Once we encounter Jesus in the Gospels, then I believe we begin to see him glorified on every single page of the Bible. And so as I uh, read Luke 24, verses 13 through 27, I want to mention a few things about the narrative story that we find there, and then I want to kind of show you what this might look like, okay? So if you're in Luke 24, start in verse 13, and I'm going to read through 27. Follow along with me. That very day, this is the day in which Jesus rose from the dead, that very day, two of Jesus' followers were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of our women of our company, they amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So this is after the resurrection, the very day of, and these two guys, one named Cleopas, one who, uh, na- whose name we don't know. They're taking this little journey to a village called Emmaus. And as they're walking, suddenly Jesus appears there with them and joins them. And they don't know it's him. Without them knowing, he becomes part of their little party. And the, the gist of their conversation is they're venting to one another. They're, they're sort of having a walking therapy session, right? They're trying to make sense of what's happened in Jerusalem, these devastating events. And they're processing their discouragement, and they're just feeling the weight of these events that have happened. And their hearts are heavy. And they're heavy because Jesus, who they thought was going to be their Messiah, came to a tragic, premature, and incredibly disappointing end at the hand of the Pharisees and the Romans. The hero upon which they had placed their hope came to a devastating end, and they are wrecked by this. And Jesus hears them talking, and so he asks them, what's going on? And we see in verse 17, the question that he asks them causes them to just stop dead in their tracks. I mean, what what are you talking about? Like, where did you come from? Have you been living in a cave? They're utterly shocked that they have stumbled upon the one man in all of Jerusalem who doesn't know current events, right? 
He clearly doesn't have a Twitter account. So they fill him in on the details, even going so far as I think kind of skeptically to tell him about this strange turn of events that had begun to take place this morning. Uh, this report that there were angels and an empty tomb and, and this very bizarre twist in the storyline. And I think at this point in them telling him the facts, we see that these uh, stranger, or I'm sorry, these guys in telling the story to this stranger are uh, a little bit embarrassed about the details of the event, I think. It's clear they want to give Jesus the facts of what has been told to them, but it's also clear they don't really want to associate themselves to the claim that's being made that these facts are indeed true, that they represent the resurrection from the dead. I think the tone in verses 22 to 24 is a bit of skepticism, right? I talked a couple weeks ago about how the, the witness of a woman at this day and age was not reliable. And so they're sort of like, yeah, we heard you know, the report from these ladies over here that the tomb is empty, but ah, it's kind of weird, right? They don't believe what these women have claimed to see with their own eyes. These men, I think, are suffering from disbelief. And I think that disbelief produces a bit of embarrassment in them. I mean, you might feel this way too, right? People don't rise from the dead. And so if it was your responsibility to go to a tomb and, and, and pay some uh, respects to somebody and, and the, there was a hole in the ground and the tombstone was gone and the casket was empty, uh, it would be a little bit embarrassing to come back to your friends and be like, yeah, it, there was nobody there. Except one person did rise from the dead, right? Jesus actually did rise from the dead. But have you ever suffered embarrassment because of what you believe? Have you ever felt that feeling? Have you ever thought, maybe this is why you don't have a relationship with your neighbor or why you've never invited them to church because you're actually a little bit embarrassed of the story. God in the flesh, crucified, buried, raised from the dead. That's a little bit weird and maybe you feel a bit of shame sharing that story with people who you think might ridicule you, mock you, and feel sorry for you that you ascribe to that. You ever been ashamed of the gospel because of what it claims to be true? Or maybe because of what it demands from you or from the lives of other people? Let, let me remind you that this is in fact a true story. This is factual in every way. There is nothing about this story for which you should be ashamed of, which is why Jesus then breaks into the conversation with the wisdom of God to help these guys see what's really going on here. This is not some crazy story. Let me read verses 25 through 27 again. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses in all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The first thing that Jesus does with these guys is he actually rebukes them for their unbelief. And as gentle as Jesus normally is, I mean, when I think of Jesus, I think of him in very gentle terms. But he doesn't seem too gentle here at first. If you remember the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says to those following him, basically, don't you dare call somebody a fool. Because if you call somebody a fool, God might look at you like a fool. 
But Jesus doesn't hold back when he exclaims to these guys, oh foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. I want to reiterate a point that I made last week, and there's no way around it. Unbelief is foolish. It is foolish not to believe in the resurrection. Remember what I said last week, that the greatest sin against God is not these horrible things that we might think like murder or adultery or something like that. It's actually unbelief. Proverbs remind us that, Proverbs reminds us that it is the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. Some people claim that believing in Christianity is foolish, that our faith is contrary to evidence, that you should feel ashamed in telling your neighbor that you believe that there is a God who rose from the dead because you can't prove it. But I want you to understand that actually the opposite is true. It is literally foolish to disbelieve in the resurrection of Jesus, to not believe in the factual record of events that have been passed down to us through generations reliably in the text of the Bible is actually contrary to an insurmountable amount of evidence. And so we should never be ashamed of the gospel. We should never be doubtful of its truth because it happened. Jesus rose from the dead, and this is good news to those that we proclaim it to. It is salvation for mankind. But then after Jesus rebukes these guys for their unbelief, then I think he shows his patience for the foolishness that we sometimes have when we struggle to believe. Because Jesus sticks with these these guys. He's not like, you know what, forget you guys. I'm going to go find some people with a little bit more faith, and I'm going to spend my time with them. He sticks with them, and and he goes on to explain that the events that happened, they weren't some tragic accident. They weren't a political misunderstanding. They weren't a premature end to the ministry of Jesus. In fact, Jesus died right on schedule, right according to the definite plan of God from before the foundations of the world. Their discouragement, their disbelief in these moments is not necessary Because our God who orchestrated this great plan has all power and all authority and all wisdom to bring about everything that he has intended to do for the salvation of mankind. Everything that he puts his mind to from before the world began. No one can stop him. No one can thwart him. No one can interfere. The script has been written out and it is being being carried out precisely how God commanded and ordained it. Even this tragic part where Jesus, the Son of God, is nailed to a cross, who's murdered horrendously at the hands of evil sinners. And what we need to understand is that this chapter of the story where God dies and where God rises from the dead, I want you to know that this was actually the first chapter of the story. The prophets foresaw it because God decreed it before the prophets were born. Before Israel was a nation, before Abraham was, before man fell in the garden, before the foundations of the world were put together by God. The story of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, it might come in the middle of your Bible, but Jesus committed himself to go to the cross according to the will of his Father 
for the salvation of man and the glory of God long before humans were created, long before we were ever even given the opportunity to turn our back against God and rebel. Listen to what the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1. This is what Shelley read for us. And I want to read it again. Just listen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. The point is that the story of the Bible, the story of humanity and planet earth, the story of God saving us from sin, all of that starts long before the first scene of the Bible opens up with the words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Because long before God created the heavens and the earth, God laid out a plan according to the mystery of his will. A plan which started with God committing to give his own life so that the creation that he would later make that we would bring to ruin through sin would be saved and redeemed through the life of God's very own son. Like a master craftsman with an intention to build a building, God first laid out a blueprint in his mind. And the blueprint included the incarnation of the Son of God in the flesh, along with the crucifixion and the resurrection. Now, lest you think I'm, I'm claiming that the Bible, uh, or that I'm crazy in claiming that the Bible is a book that we have to read from the middle outwards, I'd like to try and show you that I think this is what Jesus himself does. Look again at verses 26 through 27. Jesus says to these men, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus takes the events that had unfolded in Jerusalem over the prior three days and he shows these men that all of these events were determined by God beforehand. In other words, the Old Testament is the backstory to Jesus. The Old Testament exists to bring us to Jesus. Um, it's a bit like the Star Wars movies, actually, Right? If, if you know anything about the Star Wars movies, you, you remember that actually the middle three movies were made first back in the 70s and the 80s. But they're the middle of the story, and yet they came out first. And then later, George Lucas circled back, and he made, tragically, episodes one, two, and three <laughs> to fill in the details and give us the backstory of Luke and Leia, right? 
And now Disney, later down the road, still is making the final three episodes to tell us how the story ends. And so Jesus, in this conversation with these men on the road, he he claims that uh, his episode was the episode that came first. That's the one that God had in his mind to make before he even made creation. And then human history began to unfold from the creation onward, all in order to bring us to Jesus, that we might see him in his glory. How awesome would it have been to be on this road with Jesus and hear him tell you about Moses and all the prophets and how all of these things pointed to him and his glory, his death, and his resurrection. To have him personally show you how all of this pointed to Christ. I think that would have been a privilege. I I can't give you that privilege, tragically, but I think maybe I can expound a little bit what Jesus might have said to these guys. Uh, We don't get the specifics recorded, but I want to show you some of the ways in which Jesus could have said, look, that back then regarding Moses, it was actually about me. So you can see together with me how some of the major parts of the Bible fit together to bring us to Jesus, okay? So that's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I want to start with Moses. Moses came to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And Jesus came to lead the people of God out of slavery to sin. Moses gave to the people of Israel in Egypt the blood of the Passover lamb to save them from death. And Jesus gave his own blood as the perfect Passover lamb to save his people from death. Just like Moses gave the people of God the law on Mount Sinai, Jesus ascended the hill and gave the Sermon on the Mount, God's law, the law of Christ. So I want to use this law in particular, the law that Moses gave, to help us see how it all points to Jesus, okay? Um, And I have no shame in saying I'm going to steal this from a guy named John Frame who is much smarter than me uh, because he lays it out so well in his book, The Doctrine of the Christian Life, okay? So first, and I hope I have slides for this. Yes, okay, first, the law that Moses gave, what was its purpose? It wasn't to save anybody. In fact, it was to show us our need for Jesus, I can illustrate this. And let me simplify this. The law of Moses. What am I talking about? Let's simplify it and let's just say the Ten Commandments. I saw some of you mouth it. Thank you. The Ten Commandments, okay? Here they are on the slide to refresh you because I found that most people can't even list the Ten Commandments. Moses gave the people ten rules to follow written by God himself on stone tablets. Ten simple rules in order that humans might follow them and please God. That's all, okay? If you ask me, uh, 10 rules is a very low set of expectations. Um, In my house, my children have way more than 10 rules, and I expect them to follow every single one of them all of the time. Uh, But take a look at these, and then I want to illustrate to you how screwed up we actually are as fallen, sinful human beings. Ready? Go ahead, be bold. Stand up if you have kept every single one of these commandments. 
I dare you. <laughs> Double dog dare you. Nobody, nobody is bold enough to make a claim that you've done it. Even if you did, we would all know that you're a liar, which is a violation of number nine, right? Don't give false witness. And so, guys, the law of Moses, just the Ten Commandments, shows us how desperately we need help, how much we need a Savior, how much we need Jesus, because we can't even keep ten simple rules. I mean, do you realize how much help you need before God? That you can't keep ten simple rules. I can imagine Jesus saying to these guys, guys, look, the point of Moses' law was to teach you how much help you need, how desperate you are before a perfect, infinitely holy God. You can't do this on your own. You need grace. And that grace comes through Jesus Christ alone. Second, I think the law of Moses shows us the holiness of God. Most people, if you ask them, will tell you, yeah, I think I'm pretty good. All in all, I'm, I'm generally pretty decent. I'm not perfect, but I'm, I'm more good than I am bad. And maybe that's you. Maybe you look around at our crazy, screwed-up world. I mean, all it takes is like 10 minutes on the internet and you realize how messed up our world is, right? And maybe you look around the world, or look at the world around you and you think, man, I'm doing all right. I'm pretty good. All in all, I'm a pretty decent person. I'm no thief. I'm no murderer. I'm no child molester. I'm no liar. But remember, you can't even keep the Ten Commandments. And I know it because you were too ashamed to stand up earlier because we all know better. And seriously, what is wrong with you that you can't keep the Ten Commandments? What's wrong with you? And see, the law shows us God's expectations and his expectations for you are perfection. I'm incredibly frustrated by this because I'm in a a graduate program right now and when I start every semester... My grades are posted, and I start with 100%. And by the end of that semester, that number is gone, right? All it takes is one missed question on one simple five-point quiz, and I don't get perfection. And it's frustrating. God's expectation for you is perfection. 100% achievement every day for the whole duration of your life. And so pretty good does not cut it. Pretty good is not enough. The Bible says without holiness, that's perfection, no one will see God. And so the law helps us see how imperfect we are and how perfect God is, that he expects 100% achievement. I can imagine Jesus saying to these guys, guys, the law is not ultimately about what you do. It's about who God is and the beauty of his perfection. Third, the law of Moses shows us the perfection of Jesus. Jesus is God. God is perfect. Therefore, Jesus is perfect. The Bible teaches us that Jesus, although he was tempted, never broke a single one of the commandments. Ponder that for a second. Unlike you, go down the list of the Ten Commandments and Jesus upheld every one of them perfectly all the time. He never sinned. 
He never had a single thought, attitude, word, or deed that was displeasing to God his Father. Every moment of every day, he thought about his Father in heaven and what God wanted him to do, and he went and he did it to please his Father. Man, you probably, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here, you probably can't even go a single day without violating one of the Ten Commandments, right? Not one day. Jesus went some 12,000 days without violating a single one of the Ten Commandments. 12,000 days without dishonoring God at any point. Even as he hung on the cross, dripping his blood onto the creation that he made, he never cursed God, he never doubted God, He never felt sorry for himself. He never complained. He never regretted obeying God his Father, even though it led to his horrible death. And so the law helps us see how perfect God is, how imperfect we are, and how perfect Jesus was when he lived as a man. Fourth, the law of Moses helps us see how we become righteous. This is the beautiful part. If God's expectation for us is perfection and we are not perfect, then we are in big trouble. Like being pretty good isn't going to get you there. We're in big trouble unless God is generous and kind enough to actually give to us as a gift the perfection of Jesus, his son. And this is what faith is. This is what faith means. This is why Belief is so important and why unbelief is so offensive to God. When I trust myself into the hands of Jesus, I am admitting to God, I'm broken. I need you. I'm condemned. God, when I stand before you, I acknowledge I am a sinner and I need your grace. I admit through faith that in a room full of people, I would not dare stand up and claim that I have kept the Ten Commandments. I mean, unfortunately, I was standing, but if there was a chair here, I would have sat down. I've not done what God asked me to do, and I wouldn't claim it in a room full of people. I can never live up to God's expectations. My heart is corrupt. It is rebellious before a mighty, holy king. But God... But God, in his love and generosity, has put forward a solution for my sin problem. And I entrust myself to his son, Jesus. I give my life to him. And Jesus, in overwhelming kindness, gives back to me his righteousness. Because Jesus is holy, and through faith I am in Jesus, I therefore am holy before God. Because Jesus was a law keeper, and by the Spirit of God I have been raised with new life to Jesus, I am a law keeper in the eyes of God. Because Jesus loved his Father and loved him to the very end, and I am covered by the love of Christ, I too am a God lover, and I will love him to the end. And again, this is why unbelief is such an egregious sin, an awful sin in the eyes of God. God has freely offered to save you through his own work, through his own suffering, through his own life and death and resurrection. 
And to persist in unbelief and say to him, no thank you, is to curse God and say that you'd rather do it on your own. You know better. You would rather reject this kindness, this gift, this grace. Spit upon the cross of Jesus where God gave his life for you rather than accept his help in humility. Unbelief scorns the Son of God who offers to us a wonderful, free gift of grace. And what greater insult could there be to God the Father than to reject His own Son through disbelief? Fifth, the law shows us how we honor God for all that He has done for us, okay? Since God has done the work, understand this, the only thing that's left for you to do is to live a life that pleases Him in response. As an expression of thanks, we obey his commands. God already loves us. He already accepts us. He already receives us. The only thing left for us to do then is simply live our lives in a way that brings him pleasure and honor. And this is why Christians live good lives. Maybe, maybe you wonder, why do Christians do good things? Why are Christians moral people? Why do Christians obey the Bible? It's not so that God will accept us because he already has in Jesus. And because God has accepted us, we then respond with gratitude and obedience and love and thanks. We do good things and we are moral people and we obey the Bible because we are thankful in our hearts for the gift of grace that declares that God loves us through Jesus Christ. And so we express that love to him through obedience. Finally, I want you to see that the law of Moses actually shows us that Jesus is the substance of God's law. Jesus is the substance of God's law. This is what Jesus does with these men on the road. He shows them how the story has always been about him. He shows them how Moses and all of the prophets point to him. Um, I hope that you will stick around our church for the rest of your life because it's going to take us the rest of your life to do this. Do you understand? I don't know how Jesus managed to do it in a seven-mile walk, but he does miracles, right? Um, it's going to take us a long time to pull this off. You're like, it's already taken us a long time. Um, I know, I'm going long. So let me try and quickly show you how Jesus is the substance of the Ten Commandments, okay? Just the Ten Commandments. I mean, again, you're going to have to come back for the rest of your life to hear the rest of it. So let me just tackle these ten. And hopefully by doing this, you will see Jesus in the commands that God gives us, okay? I think I've got slides for this, right? Can we throw the first one? Okay, perfect. The first commandment, it reminds us to love God, to love him alone, to worship Jesus as the one true God. Jesus is Savior, Lord, and King. Do you understand how incredibly radical it is for Jesus, who was a Jew, to say, worship me? He is the substance of the law because if you want to worship the Father, bow down at the feet of Jesus. And you have done everything necessary to worship God. The second commandment, reminds us that Christ alone is the exact image of God. Have no idols, and yet you bow down at the feet of Jesus? That is not idolatry because Jesus is God. He is the one to whom we bow down. 
The third commandment teaches us that Jesus is the very name of God. If you want to know what you need to do to be saved and to honor the name of God, cry out to Jesus. Let his name roll off of your lips and you will be saved. The fourth commandment teaches us that spiritual rest for all eternity comes through Jesus. I don't think it's about the Sabbath. I think it's about the fact that Jesus is the one who took us out of slavery to sin and brought us into the rest of his salvation. You can rest every day because Jesus is Lord. The fifth commandment reminds us to honor Jesus who perfectly honored his Father in all that he did. How do you honor God the Father? Honor Christ. The sixth commandment reminds us that Jesus suffered murder so that we might live. And he is the Lord of life because he did not stay dead. He rose. The seventh commandment shows us that Jesus is our bridegroom. What does true wedding faithfulness look like? Love for Jesus. He has chosen us as his beloved bride and we love and we honor him exclusively. The eighth commandment teaches us that if we have Jesus, we need nothing else. He alone will provide for our needs. He has given us a great inheritance of incomprehensible riches in the kingdom to come. In the ninth commandment, we remember Jesus himself is the truth. Through him, all the promises of God are yes. And in the 10th commandment, we're taught that our heart needs nothing else beyond a desire for Jesus Christ. He alone is our great treasure. I hope this isn't academic. I hope this doesn't bore you. I really don't think that it should be boring or academic. I think that it should cause a burning sensation in your heart. We're going to get to this detail next week, but verse 34 of this chapter, if you cheat and look ahead, says that these men later proclaimed, did not our hearts burn while he was with us? Did not our hearts burn with passion and joy and excitement and desire as Jesus told us all the ways in which Moses and the prophet and all the scriptures pointed to him. It says very clearly that as Jesus was talking with them, they fell asleep from boredom. No. You're like, wait, what? No, they didn't, right? Their hearts burned. And I think after all of this, what I want you to know is that Christ is the lens through which we read Scripture. He is the summary of Scripture. He is the purpose of Scripture. He is the thing towards which all of Scripture points. And as we read the Bible and we see Jesus and we encounter him there, it should be true of us as well that our hearts burn with a desire for him. The whole Bible points to Jesus that we might know him and love him and desire him. And the whole point of the Christian life is that we would grow in that love for him. And I've said this again and again and again, but I think you need to hear it one more time. At the end of this long and difficult journey, do you know what waits for you? Jesus. 
That is who waits for you. He is the prize for which we strive. He is the end. He is the goal and our satisfaction. Let me close truly with this illustration, okay? Um, This last birthday, my son Soren, who turned six, he opened one of his presents and he pulled out of uh, the bag this very cool hat that his uncle had given him. And Soren didn't know this, but this was a hat that his uncle had given him because his uncle had received it when he was a kid. And uh, it was precious to him. He had been given it by his parents probably 15 years prior and had kept it all that time. And it was a a wonderful, kind, thoughtful gift to give to my son Soren, right? But when Soren opened the present, he did two things that broke my heart. And if you've watched a young child open presents, maybe you have seen a similar thing unfold. He opened this gift, and it was a bag, so he kind of pulled it out. And um, the first thing that he did was give this sort of blank look of utter unexcitement over the fact that he had received this gift. He just kind of looked at it. No excitement, no change of expression, no joy, no wonder, no gratitude. And then second, as he pulled the hat out of the bag and looked at it, he then kind of very dismissively just sort of like, man, tossed it over his shoulder and went back to looking in the bag to see if there was anything else in there. And he wasn't trying to be rude. He wasn't trying to be mean. Um, He's just a six-year-old, right? He didn't care. He didn't understand. He, He grabbed this gift, and to him it was just meaningless. It was unexciting. And brothers and sisters, I want to say to you, I hope that on the day in which you stand before Jesus, and he's there to give you himself as the greatest gift that you have ever received, the fulfillment of all of God's mysterious plan to save and redeem and reunite broken humanity with himself, the fullness, the culmination of all of God's love for mankind in creating and redeeming us. I hope that on that day that you stand to receive from him, himself as the greatest gift, that you don't dismiss him, that you don't look him in the face with a blank stare, a lack of excitement, and begin to look around and wonder, where's the real gift that I worked so hard for? I hope that none of you feel a lack of excitement, but instead your heart burns like it has burned every day of this life as you have pursued Jesus. And the only way in which you'll be prepared to receive the great treasure that is Jesus in the life to come is if in this life every day you are learning more and more to see him in his word, to meet him in prayer, to love him with all of your heart, to seek him and desire him in the deepest parts of your soul. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that we have the same privilege that these men had. That through the Holy Spirit, the Helper, we too can go and search all of the scriptures and see the ways in which your word points to Jesus, to his death, to his resurrection, to his glory, and in that to his love for us. 
And Lord, I pray that none of us would feel a lack of excitement in this wonderful gift that we've been given in your son Jesus. Lord, I pray that even now, between today and next Sunday, that our hearts would burn with a desire for you. And that we would see you not only in the words of Scripture and in our prayers, but but everywhere, at work in the lives of our neighbors, even in our place of work as we glorify you and honor you through working diligently for your glory. In our families, our children, our spouse, our marriage commitment. Lord, I pray that everywhere we turn, we would see Christ. And Father, we thank you so much that you have given us this great gift, that you have satisfied our need before you to be justified through the work of your Son. We thank you for your love in him. Amen.